0: Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Well, we've all seen crime shows like Bones and CSI with forensic experts that are able to solve crimes by analyzing biological clues. Those experts that analyze bones are able to determine the age, biological sex, or any other clues that bone is hiding, and they're called forensic anthropologists. Forensic anthropology is the application of the science of physical or biological anthropology to the legal process. Physical or biological anthropologists who specialize in forensics primarily focus their studies on the human skeleton. And it just so happens we have a new expert in town, Dr. Jana Andronowski. Dr. Andronowski's research focuses on high resolution, 3D imaging of bones and the related study of bone adaptation, aging, and disease. She has over 10 years experience working in forensic based laboratories. For example, in the Forensic Anthropology Unit, the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner in New York City, Simon Fraser's University Center for Forensic Research and the Forensic Anthropology Center at the University of Tennessee. She's now the Forensic Anthropologist for the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner and a Professor of Clinical Anatomy at the Medical School here at Memorial University. She came on today to talk about her work, and we discussed a lot of topics. And I think you'll find that the body, and in particular our bones, can tell us a lot about our health and our habits. Let's check it out. Hi, Dr. Androneski, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike, thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk to you today. It's an interesting topic because you are a forensic anthropologist. Can you give me a bit of background about what you do, what you research at the university?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I have a very multidisciplinary background. I am a trained human anatomist, biological anthropologist, as well as forensic scientist, and so my research and teaching sort of gets into all of those different veins. Forensic anthropology is a fairly young applied subdiscipline in biological anthropology, and We do work with assisting law enforcement, identifying unknown individuals, assistance with recovery from burials and surface terrain, this type of thing. But forensic anthropologists also play many roles that you might not recognize. So for example, we can perform age estimates in living persons from radiographs, for example, of of unidentified individuals. We can assess with time since death of unknown remains. Uh, We help with the investigation of mass disasters and disaster victim identification from those disasters, as well as assist with positive identification for those with tentative identities.
0: That's interesting. And you think about anthropology, I think about people digging up old remains of objects from, from Egypt and things like that. So why is the field of medical anthropology so important of understanding the body?
1: Right, exactly. We can learn a lot from bone. So I always say this, that bone is a living record and so many of our activities and lifestyle factors and these types of things uh, affect how our bones respond. So I feel like bone is often underappreciated. People feel like it's a static type of tissue, but we really can retrieve a lot of information from bone because it is dynamic. So it is changing in response to our physical activity to hormone levels to our nutrition and of course in response to any trauma or disease
0: that we experience throughout our life. How do people start looking at bones to give clues about what people lived like? When did that field start to emerge?
1: So people have been studying skeletons for many, many years. Um, Forensic anthropology in itself is a fairly young discipline. So for example, you know, the methods that we apply to assess age and sex and these types of things, it's really just uh, been prominent since 50s and, and 60s. And our methods are always evolving to be more precise. Of course, there are different areas of, of anthropology. You mentioned aspects of archaeology, like recovering ancient skeletons or historic skeletons. For me, I'm focused on modern individuals. So this would be uh, anybody who has passed away within the last 50 years. That's sort of a modern uh, or forensic case. But again, even in just biological anthropology alone under that umbrella, there are so many different aspects that we can study. So I, I mentioned certain things like genetic aspects or nutritional aspects, but you know we also have people who are specialists in estimating certain types of what we call the biological profiles. so aspects of population or aspects of age. And of course, these are going to be represented in the skeletons differently depending on what age those bones are. So say we have individuals from hundreds of thousands of years ago, we're going to see different markers on the skeleton
0: than we do today, right? Right. Actually, that's an interesting point is our bones Mm -hmm. change as we get older. We actually have more bones as a kid than we do as an adult. How does our skeleton shift throughout our lives?
1: You bring up a very important point. So our skeleton is in many pieces of parts when we're born that eventually will fuse to those 206 bones that we uh, commonly think of when we think of the adult uh, human skeleton. And this growth and development process happens at really particular time points, right? So it's, it's pretty chronologically oriented. But once our bones are finished, sort of that growth and development process, we unfortunately begin this trajectory of degeneration. But despite this, our bone has a really remarkable ability to continue to repair itself. So for example, if we have micro damage or micro fractures that happen at the microscopic level, our bone will work to repair, we call this micro damage, before it turns into macro damage or fracture, right? And so again, if we apply say loads to our bones through exercise, this load bearing process is really good for keeping our bones
0: healthy. Right, and that's an important thing we're going to talk about. We're talking about the impact of lifestyle, for example, and some of the healthy behaviors, but you do some really interesting research. In particular, one of the areas you look at is drug use and the impact on the skeleton. Tell me about that research, but also some of the other stuff you do.
1: Sure. So to sort of provide just a general overview, I'm a skeletal biologist and forensic bone histologist, so that means that I'm specializing in the high-resolution imaging of bone and its microstructure or its microarchitecture. And sort of a significant emphasis of my research program is to study this bone turnover process that I mentioned that's repairing our microdamage throughout uh, our lives through imaging different aspects of that microstructure. So the pores within our bone or the cell spaces where the bone cellular network live. And all of this can help us better understand not only age-related changes, but also disease processes and just how our bone adapts to different things, like you mentioned, lifestyle factors or substances like drug. Uh, or alcohol use. So sort of a big push for my lab right now is sort of trying to describe the effects of different drug use on the skeleton, particularly at that microscopic level. And my research is more focused on uh, opioid use. So both synthetics and naturally occurring opioids and how that can affect our bone microscopically and uh, lead to what we're finding is sort of an opioid-induced osteoporosis.
0: The other thing that's uh, is interesting is that bones indicate what's happening in our body in a, in a variety of ways. So you said that exercise can make a difference, drug use can make a difference, our age can make a difference, our nutrients can make a difference. What can we tell about uh, an individual's overall health from their bones?
1: Right. Um, There are a lot of different indicators that we can look at at a gross level. So, macroscopically, you know, muscle attachment sites and and, and things like this, and and overall bone density, right? By looking at the thickness of, say, the cortical bone or the connectivity of that spongy bone, right? That sort of forms that lattice work of, of support. But there are a lot of things that both promote bone health, right? And also, you know, be detrimental for bone health that are just sort of part of our everyday life, right? So, we can even say something as simply as, we have a balanced diet, we have good nutrition, we eat lots of fruits and vegetables, that this can really impact our bone health in a positive way. But for example, most North Americans are not consuming the recommended amount of calcium. And I don't just mean uh, drinking milk, but you know, foods fortified with calcium, or calcium supplements to sort of give us that adequate uh, nutrients that we need to, to support our bone health. And even something, you know, as simple as getting out in the sun and getting enough vitamin D, this is good for our bones, but you know, as we're experiencing in Newfoundland here the last couple of weeks, that's not always possible.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I think a lot of people don't realize that vitamin D is actually a hormone. It's produced by the skin that helps the bones form. You've learned a lot about the human body in your work. So not only do you look at bones, but you also do work with cadavers and you teach anatomy at the medical school. What are some universal things that we should all know about our body that you've sort of discovered over time?
1: So I will say that I think everybody should learn a little bit about their basic human anatomy because you never will think about your own body in the same way after you learn more about its form and function. And as you mentioned, I teach anatomy at Memorial University here. And I always also say that anatomy is at the core of all of our medical practice. And it's also a really important component in biomedical research. And so when I'm teaching, I strive to not only provide students with the comprehension of human anatomy, Uh, for general knowledge and for clinical applications. But I really reiterate to them that they're not just learning this information for an exam, but for the rest of their life, uh, professional and otherwise. So when we're teaching anatomy, we have structures that essentially are not changing too much over time, right? At least in our modern populations, we can see some examples of evolution in action. So for example, um, a lot of folks don't have their third molars, their wisdom teeth anymore, right? Because we're not experiencing that same type of diet that our ancestors used to. And so I always say form follows function. So we see these types of uh, changes in, in, in our anatomy. And so even though we all have the same pieces and parts, they might look a little bit differently in each individual just because of just the vast amount of, of human variation that we see. So of course, if somebody is 6'4, uh, they're going to have you know, much larger uh, muscles in general, even if you know they're not a particularly strong person compared to someone who's four foot ten, right? Right. So we can really learn a lot by studying variation uh, in a large number of, say, cadaver's in the lab, or by looking at a lot of images. Virtual anatomy is, is very popular now, especially given uh, that we've sort of shifted uh, online. And I will say too that there's also things that you can note about lifestyle or or diet, you know, by uh, examining the cadavers. So, for example, we can see tissue damage to the lungs from, say, cigarette smoke uh, or THC use. This represents in in different ways. Uh, We see this in all individuals, right, of all ages. So, regardless, uh, these are things that we can assess uh, from study of human variation.
0: We're talking about bone health with Dr. Jana Andronowski, forensic anthropologist for the office of the chief medical examiner and a professor of clinical anatomy in the faculty of medicine. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Jana Andronowski. She's the forensic anthropologist for the office of the chief medical examiner and a professor of clinical anatomy in the faculty of medicine here at Memorial. She's talking about how our wellness habits impact our bones. Let's get back to the interview. I think a lot of people really don't understand that the body is a machine in a lot of ways. It just happens to be a tissue machine, but all these systems work together. And although things can be placed slightly different within people, we all work exactly the same way, don't we?
1: Right. We all have the same pieces and parts. I always say that. I mean, occasionally you will see variation in, say, the number of vertebrae somebody has. Typically, we only have seven Vertebrae in our neck, but sometimes somebody might have eight or they might have six or they might have cervical ribs. So we do see these variants, but functionally, you know, most of our pieces and parts are are, are working comparably to others. In response to pathological change, that's where we see variability. And of course, uh, our exposure to factors that can affect our tissues, you know, bone or or soft tissues, uh, increase with age. And so we, again, are seeing degeneration not just of our skeletal system, but uh, of other systems as well. So that's why health and wellness is so important, not just uh, as an older adult, but all throughout your life, right? Getting into those healthy routines early, like even as a child, as an adolescent, uh, so you're comfortable, right, with those exercise regimens uh, before we start really going down that trajectory of degenerative change.
0: Well, that's right. Okay. So that brings you to a really great point too, I think, is that we are similar, but we also are extremely unique. And then the things that we do in life. So it's almost like having a car. Sometimes you might have a faulty part that gets put into one car and not the other. Or sometimes you drive that car more than another car and it wears down quicker than other ones. How are people unique? And what are some of the things that they should be really paying attention to when it comes to themselves and saying, look, like, these types of behaviors that I'm looking at, or, or these types of risk factors I have, I should be cognizant of these because they're going to maybe impact my health at some point.
1: Right, ex- exactly. So going back to sort of bone health, because again, I'm, I'm a bone biologist, I can't, sure. I can't help myself. Um, so one of the things I mentioned is that continued physical activity is really important because it provides a positive stimulus uh, for our bone. And remember, because bone is dynamic, that say you have a period of inactivity or you experience an illness and you don't have to work your way back up to that stamina that you used to have, your bone will repair itself, right? So it's not just like you damaged it and it won't continue to change, it always is evolving. So as I said, even if you end this physical activity regimen, you can return to that sort of bone mass level that existed before you had that seized inactivity. And so I think that this is really important is not just cardio exercise, but also weight bearing activities or activities That impact, such as, you know, jumping or skipping rope, things as easy as this, will really increase bone mass in a a positive way. And having sort of a variety of loading patterns as well, so strength training, aerobics classes, these types of things, also promote increased bone mass uh, more than activities that involve just regular loading, like, say, standing or running or sitting.
0: Well, that, you know what that 's cool because I, I saw one time that tennis players will have the bone form differently on their racket arm because the amount of force they 're putting on it that the bone actually changes so that it 'll be stronger when they 're playing tennis. How does that work? Maybe you could walk us through how does bone form and reform and be absorbed and, and how does that work?
1: right, so any repetitive sort of stress is going to impact your body and in turn your skeleton right? So I always use the example of saying you are a pitcher, right, in baseball, and you're uh, sort of working your rotator cuff muscles and putting a lot of strain on that joint. So because we walk on two legs, right, we're bipedal. Uh, our upper limb is a lot less stable than our, than our lower limbs. So our ligaments are looser, these types of things. And so we tend to see damage to these unstable joints from repetitive injury. So same thing, even if you're a truck driver, right, you're using your right arm to shift gears, you're seeing that same degenerative change to bone, to muscles, uh, and again, as you said, how we can also see sort of the opposite effect if you're using repetitive strain in sort of a building way, like something that's not as extreme, I guess, as, as the pitching motion. But in terms of of basic bone change, so we talked a little bit about uh, bone remodeling, right? Bone turnover. So again, this is the replacement of any old or slightly damaged bone continuously throughout life to maintain that micro strength, so we can therefore in turn keep our macro strength and, and sort of decrease the the risk of bone fracture. But of course we get older and we have this imbalance of remodeling that can happen so bone both forms and resorbs in concert right in healthy individuals but in bone affecting conditions such as osteopenia or osteoporosis you tend to get more bone resorption than formation and so because of that your osteoblasts that form bone they can't keep up right and so you get this development of microfractures And that will then lead to macro fractures in some cases.
0: Wow, okay, so that's perfect. We had Dr. Chris Kovacs on who talked a lot about osteoporosis as well. He made a really interesting point of that when we left the ocean, if we were fish, we had to bring the minerals with us. And uh, Mm -hmm. why do we need to, why is our bone constantly being tapped into like a bank account for daily life? Can you explain that? Because I don't think people realize that it's really a a bank of, of nutrients
1: exactly so again in addition to just forming sort of our structure of our body right like people think of our skeleton as a series of steel steel bars that support our muscles and act as levers for movement but that's not the case right they're also reservoirs for a lot of different minerals a lot of different nutrients and our bones are also producing bone marrow right so this is also a really important physiological function as well as sort of maintaining that balance of okay, we need to have sort of structure to contain our thorax, our heart and our lungs, but it, it really is so much more than that. And I think this appreciation of, of skeletal form and function, I always say it's the only tissue worth studying, right? <laughs> uh,
0: of course. Well, the body's smart that way. It's like, if I've got to have a skeleton, I might as well make it useful for other things too. And the more you realize that it's just such an amazing machine and it, it does it all by itself without ever having an instruction manual on how it works and what we have to do, it just just happens. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk a little bit about times when we lose bone. So we'll talk about osteoporosis first, then maybe we'll get into some of your research on drug use, because I know that destroys bone as well. But with osteoporosis, as we get older, or in particular with women, as they get older and they reach menopause, their bone mass drops off dramatically and quickly. Why is that?
1: Osteoporotic bone loss is... A really, really critical sort of healthcare issue that we're facing, not only in Canada, right, but in North America. We have, you know, millions of individuals affi- affected by musculoskeletal disorders in our country alone. And with our population sort of aging, right, the baby boomer population, we're expected to see about one in three women experience an OP or osteoporosis related fracture versus one in five men. So we are seeing this preferential impact uh, of females. And you know, recent research has been trying to target particular time frames of, of what's happening, you know, pre-menopause, during menopause and, and post menopause, right? So there are a lot of different things that go into this because, you know, as humans, we're very multifactorial, right? So just because I'm an aging female, I might also have lifestyle factors that are physiologically impacting my bone, right? So I might have a poor diet, I might have had coexisting sort of chronic conditions, right? So again, we can't sort of answer that question Uh, in a vacuum.
0: Right. So I mean, that's the thing. So as people get older, they get less active. We know that activity helps with bone density. We know that their hormones change. Hormones help with bone density as well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Mm -hmm. And then also with women, they have smaller bones to begin with. So there's a, as they become less dense, they may become more susceptible to a fracture, I suppose. But another thing that you sort of alluded to earlier, but I'd like to really talk about, let's do this, don't do drugs message for kids right now on a variety of things. We know how it can affect our lives, but we probably didn't think any, about how drug use affects our skeleton, and in particular the work you do in opioids. Tell me how that works and what happens.
1: Right, yeah, and I think this is a really important topic because again, I think especially when, when you're a younger person you think uh, you're invincible and that your habits won't affect your health long-term or at least folks are not thinking uh, along those lines. And so a lot of my my focus lately has been on the opioid epidemic. So I recently came from uh, Northeast Ohio, where they have one of the highest proportions of overdose-related death and injury in the whole United States. And, you know, as we're all aware, we've seen this skyrocketing of opioid uh, pain reliever subscriptions since the 90s, and just an increase in the availability of not just uh, prescribed opioids, but also synthetic opioids as well. And Essentially, we see that about 3 to 4% of people who are prescribed opioids will turn to an illicit alternative. So again, this is not good. It's become an epidemic. And if we turn to the clinical literature, there's growing recognition that opioids, for example, are contributing to the deterioration and fragility of our bone. So at a microstructural level, which will in turn lead to uh, macroscopic right? fragility, lower bone density, these types of things. So what we're seeing is that they are sort of inhibiting our bone forming cells, those osteoblasts. And so we're having more destruction than formation, which again can increase our risk of fractures even in younger individuals. So for me, I feel it's critical that further efforts are undertaken so we can better understand all of these impacts on our bone metabolism, right? But uh, again, in humans, if somebody's using drugs, they might also have other lifestyle factors that affect their bone. So chronic alcohol use can also Impact on metabolism. We see these same types of sort of bone density related effects or sort of decreased bone density in chronic alcohol users, for example. So, some of the work that I'm trying to do is parse out sort of what are the effects of opioids versus other indirect effects of opioid use, right, that might be going on concurrently. So, we have to consider things like nutrition and caloric intake and physical activity and all of these things and try to parse out what's happening to our bone, you know, from drugs alone, right? Which is very, very challenging uh, in humans. Um, And so I've been working with an organ donation nonprofit to uh, procure bone. And from this, we can do imaging experiments to actually learn about what's happening at sort of a micro scale. So are we seeing increases in porosity to the bone? Are we seeing impact to bone cell network? And all of these different types of things that we can um, really learn from through bone imaging.
0: We're talking about bone health with Dr. Jana Andronowski, Forensic Anthropologist for the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner and a Professor of Clinical Anatomy in the Faculty of Medicine. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Jana Andronowski. She's the Forensic Anthropologist for the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner and a Professor of Clinical Anatomy in the Faculty of Medicine here at Memorial. She's talking about how our wellness habits impact our bones. Let's get back to the interview. Let's talk a little bit about exercise right now because we talked about how exercise can be good. Before we get into the benefits of exercise, I'll give you an example I've heard before and maybe you can help me understand this, but there's lots of stories about young gymnasts that were at a very, very competitive level with so many fractures, but they're doing a lot of exercise. Why would they be having fractures in that sort of extreme case? And then we'll bring it back to what are the good things that they're doing that we can apply for a regular person that won't have any of the negative effects.
1: Right. So for individuals who are young, right, we're still going through the growth and, and development uh, process. Um, your bone is not only remodeling, like I talked about, replacing micro bone, but it's, it's modeling. So it's increasing in length, it's increasing in width. We're having sort of this drift of the bone through your other tissue, so through uh, tissue space. And so if you have fractures when you're a younger individual, they actually feel a lot more quickly than an older individual's because of this ongoing modeling as well as remodeling process. So again, this sort of overuse of all of our connective tissues, right? Like again, our bones are levers for the muscles, for the tendons, uh, for our joints. And so this can uh, lead to strain. You can have, so going back to growth and development, our bones are in pieces and parts as we talked about. So there's sort of bone caps called epiphyses and metaphyses or or growth plates. And again, if you're sort of pulling on these tendons or these muscle attachment sites, then this can lead to sort of issues uh, with You know, different ailments, like you've ever heard of Osgood-Schlatter's disease, for example.
0: I had that. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So you're having like
1: a pulling of the actual muscle where it attaches uh, to your tibia in that case, for example. That's
0: right. they call it Osgood-Schlatter's disease. But really, it's just your uh, your tendon pulling on your knee because your muscles are growing so quick and they haven't quite solidified their attachment to the bone yet. Um, Yeah. So that's for young people. So for young people, I think it's a, you know, they got kind of a message is, you know, exercise for sure, be as active as you possibly can, but you don't need to go and set the world record for bench press right away. You need to give yourself time to grow, but for the rest of us, like how important is it that while we've got the opportunity, so anything that's a, let's say, you know, after puberty to entering later stages of life, how important is it for us to add resistance to our body and maybe exercise to, to help our bones?
1: Right. So as I alluded to earlier, continued physical activity, not only in, you know, older age, but sort of throughout your life is really important because it's this positive stimulus for bone, but also muscle and other sort of aspects that lead to, you know, a lifelong commitment to physical activity, right? So exercise is critical for that. And so for bone sort of mass or gain to occur, we need the stimulus to be greater than that which bone is normally experiencing, right? So you need to apply static loads um, that are more than just continuous. So for example, standing, that's not going to help us too much to increase our bone mass, but actually resistance type training. And I mentioned uh, activity that imparts impact, like jumping rope or skipping these types of things at moderate uh, to sort of endurance type intensity are really good for us to maintain uh, that health, even just brisk walking, right? We should all get our 30 minutes of brisk walking a day. We live in beautiful Newfoundland. There's lots of Parts of the East Coast Trail, we can go out and experience, right? So I think that this is all really important and it's good for our mental well-being as well, especially since we've all been locked down for a good part of the year, right?
0: In a paper published in 2019, researchers from the University of Michigan reviewed data from the last 50 years to determine what impact exercise has on bone density. In their research, the investigators found three characteristics of exercise that have the largest impact on our bone. First, the magnitude of muscle strain that an exercise exerts dictates bone mineral density. But what does that mean? Exercises that fit into this category include weightlifting and gymnastics because of the amount of force placed on our muscles and bones. The next factor was the rate of muscle strain an exercise exerts. This means that the bone responds to the speed at which repetitive, high-impact exercise such as tennis or jumping sports are performed. And lastly, the frequency by which muscle strain occurs impacts our bones. An example of this is running because the impact on muscles is not only repetitive, but continues for a long period of time. That said, constant impact can also wear down our joints. So balance in all of these activities is key. But I think the most important part of the research is that they concluded that increased bone density can be achieved with as little as 12 to 20 minutes of weight bearing exercise performed three times a week. Let's get back to our interview. You said the bones are another function outside of you know, providing you know, minerals and things like that for our body, but they are steel structures that help the rest of our muscles work. Um, how important is keeping our bones healthy to keep the rest of our body moving?
1: Right, exactly. Especially as we get older, it is critical to work, especially when you're, when you're uh, older female, right, post-menopause, uh, you really need to keep up these bone strengthening exercises to maintain that bone mass. Your bone remodeling becomes out of whack. As we get older, we see more resorption than we do bone formation, which can again lead to this increase in fragility. And so, it's it's critically important uh, to maintain an exercise regime because if our underlying supportive structure comes compromised, then we're going to be limited in what we can do with our soft tissue structures, right? Like our mm-hmm. muscles and and that sort of thing. So, critically important. And as I said, if you go through a period of sort of inactivity, so say uh, you have to be bedridden for a number of months, or you're just inactive, say I, I'm, I'm just sedentary, I enjoy hanging out on the couch, you know, form follows function. So we're going to see this decrease in, in bone density and bone strength because of that, even in younger individuals.
0: So we talked a little bit about exercise and how lifestyle impacts our bones. But uh, before we get into some other topics on the preventative and sort of wellness side, I really want to dig into what you do for a living and some of the forensic work that you do. So we've all seen CSI before, and we've seen them do all these lab experiments on different things to be able to date a body and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about your work in forensics, and then maybe we can talk about a few things you've seen that have been kind of crazy over the years.
1: Right. So definitely the field of forensic science in general has certainly gained a lot more popularity since the onslaught of crime dramas like CSI and, of course, uh, Bones. Right. That's the forensic anthropology crime show. Um, But that being said, you know, a lot of the work that we do is not as uh, exciting or sexy as it's portrayed on these shows. Right. So, for example. We're never going to show up at a scene wearing stilettos and not improper, you know, PPE. And we don't have fancy laser light machines in our labs. Anthropologists are often, you know, stuck in basements (laughs) without windows and these types of things. So, you know, we we don't typically have all sort of the fancy uh, hologram machines and this sort of thing. And a lot of us actually work in professional settings like universities or museums or medical examiners' offices, it's it's actually quite rare to have a full-time position as, as just a forensic anthropologist because you need to live in, say, a state that has or a city with a lot of uh, ongoing casework. So that means a lot more uh, crime and sort of, you know, you really see the underbelly of, of, of a city when you live. For example, in New York City, I used to live and work in New York City, uh, work with the Office of Chief Medical Examiner. And the cases that I would see there are much different right, than the cases right. I would see in Newfoundland. Yeah,
0: Right. You've got a city that almost has the same population as Canada. What are <laughs> some things that you saw that were a little bit uh, like, holy cow, that, that one stood out to me? Any of those stories?
1: So I can tell you a little bit about how I got into, for example, like the forensic bone histology portion based on you know cases that I've worked because Working at New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner really sort of shaped my trajectory as a forensic scientist. And I sort of learned firsthand that crime scenes and the subsequent skeletal analyses can be really complex, especially when you have you know, multiple individuals present or when the bones recovered are fragmented, right? So again, if the bones that are recovered are fragmented, we can apply aspects of sort of age estimation based on those products of remodeling that I talked about before, or determine determine if those bones are human or not. So for example, Part of my work there involved, of course, cases with unknown skeletal remains, and we would work up that biological profile. So again, the estimated age at death, biological sex, uh, trauma, pathology, living height or stature, right? And I would perform the histological age estimate where other anthropologists would do sort of a macroscopic uh, age estimate based on joint surfaces, these types of things. Mm-hmm. So there were a number of cases in this one year, sort of a cluster, uh, where the anthropologist would say, these individuals, 25 to 35 based on X, Y, and Z skeletal markers. Whereas the histology uh, indicated that the individuals were older, say uh, 50 plus. And so there's this huge discrepancy in our methodology, right? And so this really got me thinking about how a lot of these physiological factors that we know affect bone are not incorporated into our methods. And it turns out that these individuals uh, were drug users that had uh, also a lot of indirect effects associated with sort of Um, That lifestyle that was impacting their bone biology. So that literally shaped my whole research trajectory uh, as it stands now. So because
0: of their drug use, their bones look like they were 15 years older. But using other techniques, they're like, these people are actually this old. That's really interesting. Anything else you've seen that's sort of been a little bit startling or or sort of things that you, you didn't really know, any aha moments that looking at these bones in these very unique circumstances?
1: So I will say that every single case is different. That's what I love about forensic anthropology is that when I was working primarily in that area, you go to work thinking I'm going to do lab work today, right? And then you end up on a helicopter going to some island to recover skeletal remains. So it's, it's always really exciting. It's really dynamic. I love teaching. I love research, but I also really love that sort of ever-changing environment. And no two cases are the same, right? Mm-hmm. And I will say that The primary reason we do our job, the number one reason is so we can identify individuals who are missing, right? Who are lost and give them a name, return them to their family. So that sort of humanitarian aspect to our work is really important. It's what drives us. And again, whenever you have a case where that individual has been identified, it's always very rewarding because you know that, again, you're bringing closure to a family.
0: Mm -hmm. And and outside of that work, you also were teaching anatomy at the university. You've done a lot of work with cadavers and for those people that don't know, that's somebody who's donated their body to science and they're used for research and people to understand the anatomy. For most people, that's a very foreign concept. But, you know, you'd be working on somebody and, and you don't really know what their medical history was, but all of a sudden you, you stumble upon something. Give me some examples of that you see.
1: Yes, exactly. So, as I said, even though we all have the same pieces and parts, the presentation is often different, and you always see things that are unique. Whether it's just the results of human variation, like say I mentioned the extra vertebrae or the cervical ribs, or you know sometimes you might even see something as rare as the sort of shift of the organs to the other side of the body. So, for example, you know your heart usually is biased to the left side, but I've only seen one case of this, it's called sinus inversus, where everything is flipped to the other side. You know, your liver's on the left instead of the right. And this type of anatomical variation is always an oh my gosh moment, right? Because we're used to seeing things in, in a certain appearance and it's, it's always a great teachable moment for our students because you can say, you know, did you notice that this individual, you know, has extremely large liver, the right lobe is, is you know, all the way extending over to the left or um, even something as simple as we have uh, flexors, Right in our forearms, and we have a small muscle called the palmaris longus, but it's not present in everybody. It's only present in uh, about one-third of people. It's absent, actually, now. It's just sort of a weak uh, flexor, and it's another example of kind of evolution and action, sort of like uh, the third molars, right? Uh, In terms of pathology, again, never ceases to amaze me, some of the differences that we see, like for example, if your uh, thoracic aorta becomes enlarged, and aortic aneurysm close to rupturing, it's just very, very impressive a vessel this big, how much larger and dilated that can become, right, before an nice. actual rupture. Uh, and then, you know, we've been talking about skeletal system and bones and joints. It's very common to see hip replacements, knee replacements, even shoulder replacements in our older cadavers. I take a lot of bone tissue for my research, so for example, so when I'm Procuring curing bone or removing it, I have to be careful to watch out for rods, screws, these types of things, uh, especially uh, around the hip, like so in the, in the femur, for example, in the thigh.
0: We're talking about bone health with Dr. Jana Andronowski, forensic anthropologist for the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner and a professor of clinical anatomy in the Faculty of Medicine. We'll be right back. Welcome back, we're here with Dr. Jana Andronowski. She's the forensic anthropologist for the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner and a professor of clinical anatomy in the Faculty of Medicine here at Memorial. She's talking about how our wellness habits impact our bones. Let's get back to the interview. So okay, so let's go through a couple of common things that are bad lifestyle habits before we get into some more of the good ones. But what does somebody's lungs look like when they've been smoking versus not smoking?
1: I will say that regardless of our lifestyle choices in terms of tobacco use or THC use, if you live, say, in a busy city or anywhere where there's pollution, you're going to have some, some damage to your lung tissue, right? Some darkening of the lung tissue. So I always am asked these questions by students. They say, oh, the lung tissue looks dark. Does this mean they were a smoker? But not necessarily. Again, anybody who's visited New York City or a big metropolis, you know how dusty and dirty it is. Like, I always use the example of, I would have this white jacket I would wear to work, I would walk there in New York, for an hour, and then literally it would be sort of yellowed, you know, after two days, Mm -hmm. and you're breathing this in, right, you leave your window open, the same thing, there's dust on your window. So you're going to have some level of pollution-related damage, right? But again, your bone and your other tissues, they can repair themselves uh, after such exposures. So something like smoking, you tend to see, again, like a blackish sort of um, discoloration. With THC use, or smoking marijuana, tends to be more of a brownish uh, Mm -hmm. discoloration. That's what I've seen in organ donation and both in uh, cadaver Cases
0: as well. Right. Okay. Well, let's keep on going with this one. This is kind of interesting. Um, what about, you know, we've heard of fatty liver disease. We've heard about people that have uh, obesity challenges or people that have poor diets. What does the liver look like in somebody who's got that condition?
1: Yes, so fatty liver disease or replacement of your healthy tissues uh, with sort of uh, scarring, right, Uh, as a result of, uh, this can be from something like hepatitis, from uh, alcohol use. Again, we can also have uh, a sort of non-lifestyle related fatty liver disease, which Uh, It's sort of abbreviated called NASH, but you can see that as well. Not as common, however. But each time your liver is damaged, so say by even just excessive alcohol consumption, it does try to repair itself. Your liver is the only organ that can actually regenerate itself. So I will say that seeing fatty liver, this is very common in our cadavers, especially, again, because we typically have uh, older donors, right? So for people like me who work in uh, what I call the death industry, we think more about our own mortality than, say, your average person. And so, you know, I have specific donation requirements for my body for science because that's how I learned for my bones for science. But I think in terms of our donors, we tend to have an older demographic.
0: Okay, so this is the, the last question I'll ask you about the things you've seen in the lab, but what do you see in people's bones as they age when you're when you're in there and you're doing cadaver work?
1: Right. So as I mentioned, after we're done the process of growth and development, we are on this trajectory of bone degeneration. And this doesn't necessarily mean that we're aging, but it just means that we're finished growing and we're seeing this process that is really different in in all of us. And uh, this process of bone degeneration can be affected by, for example, previous injuries to a joint like knees. Uh, It can be impacted by your physical activity. So say, for example, I'm running every day on pavement and I'm not wearing proper shoes it's going to be very hard on my lumbar spine, right, on my lower spine, because you're putting a lot of force. That's a weight-bearing uh, portion of your body. And so for most individuals, say 40 and, and, and above, we'll see some degenerative change to the vertebral body. So we call this uh, lipping. So you can see a little bony outgrowth sort of surrounding the joint surface. We can also see degeneration of the discs. Again, this is very common in the lumbar spine, uh, even in, in, in younger individuals. But again, it nobody ages along the exact same trajectory, we sort of try to cram it into this linear explanation, but that's not always the case for everybody. And I think that's why we have to be really careful with things like age estimates from unknown skeletal material. If you have somebody who might display these types of joint changes, but other indicators might say that they're younger, like 35 to 45, right? So it can be really variable i will say that seeing sort of osteoarthritis to hip to knee really common in our cadaveric populations as well as those joint replacements that i talked about earlier and then in some cases you do have the repetitive stress injuries so you'll have a shoulder replacement and then you'll find out that this person's occupation was something that involved repetitive stress like driving a truck for 40 years right. uh, and you know using that um, that arm and, and same thing actually with soft tissue pathology. That same truck driver might have you know a skin condition, cancer from you know the left side where it's always exposed to the sun driving That's the right. truck, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. We ran into that with police officers and ergonomics where their window was down on the driving side. They would have hearing loss in one side oh, quite yeah. often because of because of that. Um, I think that if you hit my skeleton, you'd probably date it to be a lot older than it, it really is because of uh, unfortunately as a young athlete, I wasn't. I didn't know what I was doing at that time, but uh, that's why this show exists so people don't have to make those same mistakes. Let's jump back. We, we talked about exercise. We've talked about, you know, some of the things you've seen. We, we sort of briefly touched on nutrition, but let's talk about some of the things that are really important for us to, to eat properly when it comes to our bone health.
1: So we talked a bit about exercise, as you mentioned, a bit about nutrients, but even just you know having a healthy, balanced diet—it's not just good for the skeletal system, but in general for the body, right? So having a balanced diet, fruits, vegetables, calcium intake is really important as well. As I said, not necessarily drinking milk, but also taking supplements and, and that sort of thing uh, is really important, as well as sort of accounting for any metabolic conditions one might have. You know, we, we sort of talked briefly about. Say hormones and vitamin D and these types of things. But again, if you have other sort of bone impacting conditions, right, that you have to take special considerations to sort of keep your remodeling on track.
0: That's right. Yeah, I think people underestimate the importance of nutrition. It's like trying to build a house out of warped boards or good boards. It's going to be a stronger house if it's built out of the the right stuff. Now, you've dedicated your entire life to learning and to teaching, and you obviously value health literacy. What would you encourage people to do to learn more about their body, in particular their bones and their muscular system, when it comes to proving their health over time?
1: So, I alluded to this earlier, but I think it's really important for everybody just to have a basic understanding of their human anatomy, right? Just learn a little bit about your body, about your different systems, and you'll never think about your body in the same way again, right? Once you learn about its form, about its function. And so, I think that we really need to be cognizant of our lifestyle choices. So, again, I, I sort of mentioned that when we're younger, we tend to think that we're invincible and we're not always considering, you know, the longer term impact of things like alcohol consumption or tobacco use uh, and how this can impact our health. And people probably mostly don't think about oh, this impacts my skeleton and this could lead to degenerative change or bone loss over time. And so I think we need to be cognizant of that and consider everything in in moderation, right? So if there's a take home message from today, it's, it's, you know, be cognizant of what you're putting in your body in terms of outside substances, consider everything in moderation. And again, think about your bone. It's sort of the, the foundation, right? Of your whole structure.
0: That's great. Well, it's so interesting to hear from you today and all the stories and and uh, your area of research, because I know to you, it's something you do every day. But for me listening to it, it's really interesting stuff. I think everybody listening got a whole different perspective on the body. So thank you so much for taking the time. Great. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thank you to Dr. Andronowski for sharing her work with us today. I found our conversation really interesting and learned a lot about how our bones are more than just a support structure, but also an integral part of how our body functions. They also reflect our state of health, like living fossils. So keep that in mind when choosing your lifestyle habits and opt for those that will strengthen your bones. Thanks for joining me today. Remember, you can find all of our episodes on VOCM.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. And if there's a topic you want to hear, message us at The Wall Show at VOCM. That's W-A-H-L show at VOCM.com. Well, that's today's show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM.